we're trying to practice to actually power down our phones um, so that we can remove our distractions uh, during the sermon. Um, so go ahead and do that right now. Um, and we know that um, it's a discipline. It's not easy to put away your phone. So um, I've asked counselors if they, if they do see a phone that they have every right to um, take it away until the end of the sermon. If you're new here, uh, we ask that you just respect what we're trying to do here, that we are trying to hear from God. Um, and we're more than open to having a conversation with you afterwards. And uh, we're not trying to force anyone to believe in Christianity, but we just ask that you respect what we're doing. And we'd love to have a conversation with you afterwards if uh, you're interested. So we're just happy that you guys are here. Um, so uh, let me uh, pray for us at this time. We usually have about a 30 or 40 minute message from God's word, uh, the Bible. We believe the Bible is inspired, meaning God um, influenced men thousands of, year, thousands of years ago to record the acts of God um, and his work in the world. And uh, that's why we see preaching is so important. And that's why we want to make sure our distractions are removed. So uh, let me pray for us, and then we will jump uh, right into our message. Lord, I thank you for uh, the ability to hear from your word, that to read the Bible is to know you, is to hear um, your very words to us. We don't understand who you are, God, by looking within our hearts or by um, searching far and wide in the world. We understand who you are, God, by looking to your word. And I pray that tonight, as we go through your parables, um, that you would transform us through these simple truths, uh, simple stories that um, expound on powerful truths. And I pray that uh, your will would be done with us here tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so one thing I find very I find very offense with with uh, this upcoming generation is the way you have mocked uh, my favorite actor, Tobey Maguire. You guys know who he is? <laughs> he was the original Peter Parker in Spider-Man, if you've seen Spider-Man 1, 2, and 3. And uh, I laugh, but there's so many Bully Maguire videos out there that meme him into current movies. It's entertaining, but I take offense to that because he is the greatest Peter Parker in existence in universe. So I'm sorry to the Tom Holland fans or the, um, what's the second guy's name? Andrew Garfield. He, I even forgot his name. And um, uh, Miles, forgot his last name, in the, the Spider-Verse. So I remember in the third Spider-Man 3, which was a horrible movie by all accounts, but in the ending scene, Spider-Man, who's talking to Sandman, I hope I'm not spoiling this because it's not that great of a movie anyways, but Spider-Man, Peter Parker, he says something that I think it's actually kind of rare to see in movies nowadays. Um, Sandman apologizes um, for what he's done and Spider-Man looks to him and he says, I forgive you. I forgive you because I've done messed up things as well. And if you actually watch the entire movie, you're going to cringe at a lot of the things that Tobey Maguire or Peter Parker does, but it actually works because he makes a fool of himself and he's able to understand the Sandman who um, does a lot of wrong things, but asks for forgiveness. I don't think I've heard the line, I forgive you in a movie ever since then. I'm not sure why. Maybe characters might say, I'm sorry, or um, my bad, or... Um, something along those lines, but I, I rarely hear a character say, I forgive you, or will you forgive me? And I think part of that is because forgiveness, it's not really trending anymore in today's uh, day and age. 
I think it's been replaced with cancel culture. If a celebrity like Ellen DeGeneres does something wrong, you cancel them. You um, fill their Google reviews with one-star ratings. So like they, their ratings plummet. And the cancel culture that we live in today, though we can respect how it's trying to call out and hold people accountable, it's actually opposed to the gospel. Because in a cancel culture, where's the opportunity to be restored? Where's the opportunity to seek forgiveness? If we cancel people like Ellen or James Corden, are they just forever banished? Do they never have a chance to restore themselves? And the concept and principle of forgiveness is extremely rare today. But when you see it, I'm willing to argue that it can portray the beauty of the gospel in ways that, um, that you just don't see in today's day and age. And so that's the question, um, the principle that we're getting at today in the parable of the unmerciful servant. If we go to the next slide, it kind of asks this question, why should I forgive other people? Maybe there's someone at your school that you just really don't like, or maybe there's a bully who intimidates you or someone who just kicks your chair all the time. What if there's somebody who gossips about you? They lie about you. They tear down your reputation. What if you're put in a dangerous situation and someone's trying to hurt you? Should you still forgive those people? Do, do you continue to forgive someone even if they never change? It's a very difficult question. And the world will tell you, drop that friend, drop that person, cancel them. But the Bible, God is calling us to forgive. And it begs the question, well, why? Why should I forgive this other person? And so in today's preview, sermon preview, this is the outline if we go to the next point, that there's three scenes in today's parable. I'm going to go through each scene and I'm going to draw application points from uh, each scene. So just so you kind of have an idea of how I'm going to go about today's uh, parable. Um, so to set the context, we're in the book of Matthew and Jesus, we find Jesus teaching his disciples how to resolve conflict with one another, how to lovingly confront a brother or a friend who wrongs you. And this actually prompts one of Jesus' disciples, Peter, to say, Lord, if my brother sins against me, how many times should I forgive him? And it's in response to this question that Jesus jumps into the parable. So if you have your Bibles, let's see what Jesus says. Turn to Matthew chapter 18. And if you didn't bring a paper Bible, uh, raise your hand. There's a stack of Bibles over there. Um, actually, if someone wants to help pass around. Does anyone need a paper Bible? Just raise your hand and Okay, there's a hand back there. Anyone else? There's a couple over here. Okay, thank you. It's about four or five. Okay. Thank you, Joseph. We'll be in Matthew chapter 18. Uh, keep your hands raised. There's a student in the, over there. Uh, there we go. And then I think I see two hands over here. Or maybe three or four. <laughs> Matthew chapter 18. And then one more over there. And we'll be in verse 21. Matthew chapter 18, verses 21. So let's kind of see the setting that we find ourselves into. I'm just going to read verses 21 and 22 to begin with. This is what it says. 
Then Peter came up and said to him, Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Let's stop there. So Peter asked a question that maybe you and I might ask ourselves. If my friend sins against me, I mean, I know I'm supposed to forgive him, but is there a limit? Like, what if you have a friend who keeps on hurting you in the same way? Do you still keep forgiving them? And Peter suggests, well, do I forgive him seven times? And in the Jewish faith and Judaism, forgiving somebody three times was already very generous. So in Peter's eyes, he already thinks he's being very generous by saying, what if I forgive him seven times? Is that enough, Lord? But Jesus says something very shocking. He says, no, not seven times, but 77 times in uh, verse 22. Other translations imply that it could be 70 times seven, so maybe 490. The point isn't that Jesus is not trying to be literal. He's not saying if your friend sins against you the 78th time, then that's when you stop forgiving them. He's not trying to be literal. He's trying to um, give such an extreme answer. And he's trying to say that true followers of Jesus they forgive without keeping count. True followers of Jesus, they forgive one another without keeping count. If we go to the next slide, I want to give a definition of forgiveness from an amazing website with a horrible interface, Got Questions. Um, it says, forgiveness is a decision to not hold something against another person despite what he or she has done to you. Before I even talk about forgiveness, let's try to define what it means. Now, this is probably simple to understand, but it's very difficult to live out. I'm guessing you understand that too, because many of you guys live with siblings who yell at you, curse at you, blame you for things that you didn't do. Or maybe some of you have friends um, who've broken your trust and you don't know how to trust them again. Or you have coaches or teachers or tutors who say something that really hurts you. And it's easier to hold a grudge against this individual than to actually go through the difficult process of forgiveness. Jesus knows this. And it's why he now shares a parable. A parable, if you're new here today, it's just a simple story using everyday objects like the sky, a bird, the ground to illustrate enormous truths, deep spiritual truths. So let's go, um, let's read verses 23 to 27. This is scene one of the parable. Let's see the parable that Jesus um, begins to share. Verse 23, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payments be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant releases him and forgave him the debt. Let's stop there. So if we display the next picture, this is a, a very simple illustration that I tried to portray. We see a king who's trying to settle accounts, or he's trying to clear financial obligations to his servants. He's basically saying to a servant, hey, you owe me a lot of money, 10,000 talents. I need the payment now. Please pay up. And we see that the first servant owes him 10,000 talents. You might be thinking, what's a talent? 
how much is that? Well, back then, one talent was equal to 20 years of wages. So that's one talent, 20 years of wages. So multiply that by 10,000 talents. That is 20,000 years of wages, which as recent as 2011, if you're looking at the pay scale, that's equal to about $6 billion. That's a lot. Now, we're in 2021, inflation is probably higher, so it's probably more than that. So if we're going with that scale, this servant owed the king $6 billion in our currency, and he's a servant. He's not rich. And the parable is trying to convey that it's such a large amount of money that he can't even pay it back. And if you're like me growing up, when I heard the word $6 billion, it just doesn't compute. You know, on our birthdays, we get $10 bills, $20 bills, 50s, maybe hundreds. When we think of $6 billion, it doesn't compute. But this is trying to portray the fact that it's unpayable. There's nothing he can do in all his lifetime to earn that much money back. And because of that, the king orders the servant to be sold, his wife, his kids, and all the possessions. And even that wouldn't make a dent in $6 billion. And so that's why the servant throws himself on the ground. It says, um, it says in verse 26 that the servant fell on his knees, imploring him. In the original Greek, it has a sense of when you throw yourself on the ground, it's almost bowing down as if you would to a deity. This is how desperate he is. And he's saying, have patience on me. I'll pay you anything and everything I have. And how does the king respond? In verse 27, it says, out of pity for him, the master, which is the king of that servant, released him and forgave him the debt. This is incredible. If you grew up hearing this story, maybe you glaze over this fact because you've heard it before, but this is incredible. Don't miss the fact. If a friend owes you $100, you're going to be bugging them. Hey, where's my money? You're not going to wait. You might Venmo request them if you have a Venmo account. You're not going to wait for them to Venmo you on their volition. They might forget. Like, hey, where's my money? And when you get into college, I'm sorry, but a lot of us are going to be in debt. You're going to leave college and you're going to be in debt. And no bank out there is going to say, you know what? I'm just glad you had a great time in college. You know what? That money, we'll just eat the cost. Just go have a great life. No college or no bank does that outside of extreme circumstances. It's why college graduates were crossing their fingers across the nation when COVID hit because they're hoping for a loan forgiveness, which uh, I don't think ever came. They just froze the interest. So the fact that this king forgave the servant of $6 billion, it's incredible. It's unheard of. He says, you can go, leave, take your possessions, your wife, your kids, and you can go. Why does he do that? I mean, I understand what he did, but, but why? Verse 27 says it's out of pity. Out of pity, he released him. Now, I don't know if that word pity does this enough justice in today's day and age. Let's say you walk by a homeless guy and he has a, a cup and he's asking for money. You might have pity and you give him a quarter. But in that sense, pity is just like, oh, I kind of feel bad for you. Here, have some money. I'm going to move on with my life. That's not the sense the Bible is trying to convey when it says the king has pity. In the original Greek, it's more accurate to say to have pity is to be deeply moved by compassion. That's probably more accurate to say that the king was deeply moved by compassion. His inner being was moved with sympathy, 
with compassion. That's probably more accurate to say when we think, when we see verse 27, we see out of pity for him. There's this Christian podcaster, uh, an author, Russell Moore. Um, he wrote a book called Adopted for Life. And it's a book about how he was compelled to adopt, um, adopt children. And he tells the story of how he um, adopted his two boys from Russia. They flew to Russia. They entered the orphanage. And right when they enter the orphanage, they almost want to vomit because of the smell in this orphanage. And they see these two boys lying in a crib in the dark, just crying in their own wastes, in their own feces. And as Russell and his wife, as they leave the room, they, they saw one of their boys, one of the babies, reach out their hand, their arm, just crying and wailing in tears. And the hardest thing for Russell and his wife to do was to, they actually had to go back home to America because they had to wait for the adoption paperwork to, to finalize. But before they left that room, this part just broke me. This is what Russell writes in his book. I placed my hand on both of their heads, the two babies, and said, and said, knowing they couldn't understand a word of English, I will not leave you as orphans. I'll come to you. I'll come back to you. I don't think I consciously intended to cite Jesus's words to his disciples in John 14, 18. It just seemed like the only thing worth saying at the time. When I read that, my heart just broke for what Russell Moore could have been going through in his heart that time. Can you imagine the pain and compassion in Russell's heart as he leaves, gets on that plane, leaves to go back to America and just wonders, I wonder how those two boys are doing. I actually ran to Russell um, at a conference a month ago in Alabama. Um, and I said, hey, Russell, thanks for writing that book. My wife really loves it and had me read it. I'm only in chapter one, but um, thanks for sharing about that story of the process of you going to Russia and um, your desire to adopt. And he said, yeah, thank you so much. You know, those boys, they're, they're 20 years old right now. And I'm like, what? In the book, they're like, not even your sons yet. He's like, yeah, isn't it incredible? It's amazing. God is good. And I was just blown away in that moment. I'm like, wow, I wonder what happened in those 20 years? I got to finish that book. What a picture of the compassion that we see in the gospel. That Russell and his wife had this Christ-like compassion to adopt these two boys in Russia. And he didn't do it because he wanted to be a saint. He did it because God adopted him. And I think it's the same compassion that the king has to forgive the servant of his $6 billion debt, that he saw the position the servant was in, and he was moved to the point of tears. And he chose not to hold that $6 billion debt against him. It's such a beautiful picture of the God who's not distant, but intricately and intimately involved with our lives and wants to see us saved. So here's my application for us. If we go to the next slide, the application, if we go to the first point, is never forget that a Christian's core identity is merely a sinner saved by the grace of God. You and I, we're like those two little boys in Russia. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. We need an outside source, an outside person to come in and save us from our sins. Because the Bible says that the moment every single one of us were born, we were born depraved. We were born corrupt. 
We were born in sin. We we're born guilty before a holy God. And we need a holy God to extend grace towards us. When you ask yourself, what am I worth? Why am I worth anything? The answer is not my identity and worth is not as an athlete. My identity and worth is not how smart I am, the GPA I have. My identity and worth is not how many followers I have on social media, how well known I am at school. Your identity and worth, if you call yourself a Christian, is that you are a sinner saved by grace. When you build your identity on this, you could get cut from the basketball team. You could fail a class. You could be rejected from your top college, but you'll still be okay because your identity remains unshaken. If your identity is a sinner saved by the grace of God, now to be a saint. This should have been the response of the first servant to live his life grateful that the king forgave him and extend that forgiveness to other people. But that's not what happens, as most of you know. So let's see what the servant does. Let's move on and read verses 28 to 30. Let's see what that servant does now. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. If we can show the next picture, this is the next thing that I have of the first servant, pay what you owe. And I don't really want, I don't want us to miss the, the irony of what's happening right here. Scene one, the king requests $6 billion payment. The first uh, servant says, have mercy on me. And the king grants him forgiveness. Scene two, which is now the first servant encounters a fellow servant who owes him 100 denarii. And the fir first servant says, pay what you owe. And the fellow servant actually echoes the same exact words that the first servant said to the king, have patience with me. That's the same exact thing that the first servant said to the king. But instead of the first servant extending forgiveness, he throws him in jail. Isn't that really ironic? The servant who begs for forgiveness and receives it is the same person who refuses to extend that very forgiveness to his fellow servants. It's hypocritical. And if you don't know how much 100 denarii is worth, it's not a small amount. It is a big amount. It's about... Um, what was it? Uh, it's about 20. Um, what did I write? It's about $12,000. So it's about, I think, 20 weeks uh, of wages. So it's not like a small amount. It's actually a pretty decent amount. But if you're comparing $12,000 to $6 billion, well, now it is very small when you're putting it into perspective of $6 billion. And so this servant who refuses to forgive it reveals that he was not truly transformed by the king's forgiveness. Refusing to forgive somebody, it might indicate that you have not truly been transformed by God's forgiveness to you. Only the hypocrite says to God, forgive me, while turning to those around them and saying, curse you, pay what you owe. 
And I think as we're sitting in our chairs right now, it can be very, very easy to criticize this first servant. Like, are you kidding me? You just got forgiven $6 billion and your fellow servant owes you $12,000? Come on, you can't just let it go. Didn't you just get forgiven $6 billion? What's wrong with you? And I think before we're quick to judge, I want us to look inward and see, do I do the same thing? Do I also refuse to extend forgiveness to other people? If we go to the application, which is the next slide, um, the first, first point we have is, um, have you truly been transformed by God's forgiveness if you yourself refuse to forgive other people? If you claim to be a Christian, little Christ, meaning that you believe that Christ forgave you of your sins, but if you refuse to forgive other people, isn't that the very definition of hypocrite? How are you and I any different from this servant, the first servant, if you refuse to forgive people around you? And I have to ask, are you truly transformed by God's forgiveness if you refuse to forgive those around you? That's a very deep question. And all of us have stories of how people have hurt us, maybe very deeply in ways that still scar us right now. And this question can maybe trigger some of us. Like, Kevin, if you only knew what this person did to me, you would understand why I cannot forgive this person. And I want to empathize because there are very real evils in this world that have really scarred some of us for life. And I want to acknowledge that. But at the same time, I don't want to ignore the fact that we've been forgiven an infinite debt. So I'm not dismissing if some of us have a very difficult time forgiving someone who's wronged us, but I also want to say, but hey, we've been forgiven of an infinite debt against God. If we go to the next point as well in application, I also want to say there's a difference between refusing to forgive somebody and actually struggling to forgive somebody. I want to say refusing to forgive someone, you're absolutely refusing. You're like, you know what? No way. I am not going to allow my heart to even warm up and even begin the process of forgiving this person. That's a very different person uh, versus the person who says, God, I, I need help right now. I don't know in my heart how I can forgive this person who wronged me. I know I'm supposed to forgive, but God, I don't see it in my heart right now. But I want to ask that you give me the ability to begin the long journey of forgiveness. That's a very different perspective because forgiveness a lot of times, it's not a one-step thing. You don't just forgive somebody and then it's over. For many of us, especially if people have really hurted us deeply, forgiveness will be a journey. You might think you've forgiven somebody only to find that a week later, you still hate that person in your heart. And you have to constantly go back to God. God, I feel this feeling again. Help me, God. Help me to truly forgive that person. And as I reflect on my own life, I realize that the closer I get to people, the more I kind of see the real side. And sometimes I don't really like it. And sometimes I don't like it when they hurt me. And for me, I don't like having honest conversations. Like, hey, that really hurt me what you did. And because I avoid those conversations, sometimes I see myself, bitterness begins to stir up. And instead of having that difficult conversation and reconciliation, I begin to hate that person in my mind and I refuse to forgive them. And that's how I know that forgiveness, it's not, it's not very simple the more you kind of grow up and realize our emotions are very complex.
I remember, I think I shared this a couple of years ago. So if you remember it, um, just don't mind me sharing it again. But I remember in, in college, I had a best friend who I could say, I think I probably couldn't stand. Um, maybe I even hated him. Every time he entered the room, my, ha- my heart just sunk. I just felt it kind of twist in a very angry and dark way. And I was not happy when he entered the room. Um, I just, I, I disapproved his behavior. I didn't think it was godly. And maybe that was an appropriate response, but I went further than that. Instead of actually confronting him, I just hated him in my mind. And that actually lasted for many, many months. And I realized that how can I call myself a Christian if I can't even forgive this close friend of mine, if I see the wrong that he does, but instead of confronting and sharing my heart, I just, I just hate him in my mind. And I realized that I cared more about myself. I wanted to be comfortable. I didn't want to have that difficult conversation. And I remember that, that it was the summertime. I was getting ready to leave um, to work at a summer camp, a Christian summer camp. And God just really humbled me that week before I, I was about to leave. I just knew it was almost as if God was asking me, how can you go work at a Christian summer camp, preach the gospel and teach the gospel to these students, but you yourself, you're not willing to reconcile with this close friend. And I'm like, yeah, it's true. I don't know how I can do that. And I remember I came across this book um, by Paul David Tripp called Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. And it just spoke to my soul. I'm like, God, I don't want to do this. I don't want to talk to them. And I was literally like on the floor of my, um, of my, uh, kitchen, just like reading the book and like, God, I don't want to talk to him. And my, my cheek on the floor, just like, God, why this is the most awkward, most difficult thing I, I could do. Um, at least I felt like that way in the moment, but I realized like, I had to do it just God, I can't do this, but your strength will help me. And um, I ended up approaching him after a dinner one time with a group of friends and just um, apologize. Like, hey, hey, man, I'm not going to say his name. Hey, man, sorry for, um, I think, just hating you and not bringing up. When I had a problem with what you did, I didn't bring it up. Um, and I just wanted to ask for forgiveness because I think my attitude spread to my other friends who then began to treat you differently. And he was super understanding. Um, that was years ago. So now we have a very good relationship now. And I think, honest to God, if I wasn't a Christian, I would just, he'd be gone from my life. But I think God, like his Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit just worked in my life. And I realized if I don't forgive um, the people around me, how can I call myself a Christian? What does that reveal about my heart? And so I want to ask you, is there someone in your life that you're refusing to forgive? Maybe you've already done away with that person. You don't even want to open that door anymore. You've already eliminated them from your mind. But I actually want you to crack open that door because maybe God wants you to forgive that person. It doesn't always mean you have to have a reconciliation process because maybe that person refuses a change and you can't change their part. But you can, at least from your own side, extend that forgiveness. And you can internally with God open that door and say, God, I used to really hate this person. And in fact, I still do. But God, can you give me the power and strength to forgive this person? And so that is what this parable is calling us to do. This servant refuses to show mercy and he throws 
his fellow servant in prison. The king finds out, and this is what he does as we transition to our final third scene. Let's read verses 31 to 35. Verse 31, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servants, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Show the final picture. Um, we have a king who sees a servant. I know I actually, now that I look at it, it's kind of disturbing his uh, face. Um, he confronts him and he says, you wicked servant. You can't see it in the English text, but in the original Greek, the tense of the wicked and of servant, it's in the vocative form, which um, basically means it's an emphasis. So imagine he's yelling or it's not, I don't know if it's yelling, but imagine there's, it's like writing in all caps. It's an emphasis. Maybe he is angry. Maybe he is um, emphasizing these words. You wicked servants. And let's ask yourself, what is so evil and wicked about the servant's behavior? And most of you guys know, but if you receive this enormous, extravagant forgiveness from the king for $6 billion, how can you just turn around and mistreat a fellow servant that owes you a measly $12,000? And I would say the core of this parable, the thrust of this parable comes in verse 33, when the king says, should not you have had mercy on your fellow servants as I had mercy on you? I forgave you. Shouldn't you forgive those around you? That's the core of this parable. If God forgives you of an unpayable, enormous debt that you owe him, shouldn't you forgive the offenses that people commit against you? Failure to forgive other people, it reveals something about our heart. Maybe an, an unforgiving heart reveals an unrepentant heart. And here it says that God deals justly and swiftly with the unrepentant heart. This is really scary when I read the final verse. The final verse is, it's a warning. Verse 35 says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let's stop right there. What are they saying? Are you telling me that if I don't forgive other people, God will judge me as unrepentance and condemn me to eternity in hell? Is that what this passage is saying? And I want to say maybe. Actually, that's why this parable is so striking. Let me clarify. I'm not saying that if you refuse to forgive someone, that that means you're not a Christian. I don't want to reduce Christianity to a series of do's and don'ts. And I don't want to deny how complex the process of forgiveness is. It could take a lifetime for some of us. But I am saying this, 
if there's someone in your life that you are refusing to forgive and you refuse to extend forgiveness and you don't even want to go on the journey of forgiveness with them and you understand that God has forgiven you of an eternal debt, you should at least consider if your heart has truly been changed by God's forgiveness. Because someone who has truly experienced the undeserving grace of God, they will have a certain openness, a supernatural openness to forgive. If you refuse to forgive somebody, it might reveal more about your own heart than it does about the other person. And the way Jesus ends his parable, it says, if you reject God and his ways and his command to forgive others now on earth, won't you just reject God in the afterlife? So if we reject God and his commands and his ways now, when we die, he's just going to give us what we want. He's just going to say, well, you didn't want me on earth. Why would you want me in the life to come? And he merely gives us what we want, an existence in a life apart from him. And that's why this parable, it's so scary the way it warns us. Because it asks us the question, if you refuse to forgive other people, have you truly been changed by God's forgiveness towards you? Well, let me give some applications. The first one is this. Refusal, refusal to forgive others is a sin. This seems very obvious. But if we read this parable, it's actually, we have to understand how difficult it is to actually live this out. Failure to forgive is a sin. But even more than that, a continual refusal to forgive, that is an unrepentant sin. And if you are committing an unrepentant sin with no desire to um, change, you have to ask yourself, is your heart truly changed? Is your heart truly repentant before a holy God? Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Failure for, to, to forgive is a sin. And I empathize with you. When I was thinking of examples of people that I found difficult to forgive, it was so easy. I listed so many people, so many bullet points on my manuscript, which I didn't choose to share. I resonate with this. It's hard to forgive people, especially when they hurt you and you don't know why they deserve forgiveness. But I'm always convicted by this passage. And I ask myself, did I deserve God's forgiveness? Do I realize how much God has rescued me from eternal torment in hell? When I realize that and I look at the way people have wronged me, it gives me a, a more compassionate heart. We go to the next bullet point. We forgive freely. Why? Because God has first freely forgiven you. Ephesians 4.32 says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's it. You don't forgive other people because it's something you should do or if it's a nice thing to do or you want to keep the friendship. I mean, those are good things. But ultimately, when somebody hurts you and scars you for life, the only way you're going to have the strength to forgive that person, to even begin that process, is when you remember how God first forgave you. You have to start there before you even begin to consider, why should I forgive this person? So be kind and forgive one another as Christ forgave you. If you find yourself lacking in strength to forgive the other person, join the club. That's why we're here as a church, as Christians. 
we're people who realize we can't do it. That's how we have a God who can empower us to do things we couldn't do on our own. Uh, our final point, I want to ask you guys, and I'm going to have your small groups, um, if you feel comfortable, share this. Who is one person in your life that you are struggling to forgive right now? Is it a parent? Is it a friend, a sibling, a teacher, a random person at school? Who is one person in your life that you struggle or you refuse to forgive? My big idea for today, if we go to the next points, is radical forgiveness towards others is possible. It's only possible when you experience God's radical forgiveness towards you. We are only capable of radically forgiving others when we realize how much we've been radically forgiven of a $6 billion quote-unquote debt from God. I think that's what our world needs. We live in a world that cancels people and it's right to do so in their eyes. But what if we as Christians lived with a forgiveness culture? It doesn't mean we dismiss the wrong people have done. If somebody did something wrong, they should be held accountable. There should be consequences, but there should also be forgiveness at the end of the day. I want to end with a story that, again, also hits me straight, um, straight to the heart. If you go to the next slide, here's a story. When you first see this picture, you might imagine, oh, it's a mom and a son together. Nothing to be further from the truth. That's actually the mom, a mom, and her son's killer, her son's murderer. This mother, Mary Johnson, is with a man, O'Shea Israel. O'Shea murdered her only son in 1993. At the time, O'Shea was only 20 years old. And they were a, he was at a party. He got in a fight with the mother's son. The fight escalated, took out a gun, and shot him. In court, the mom, Mary, writes in court, I was pleased he, O'Shea, was going to be tried as an adult for first-degree murder. So when the judge suddenly changed the charge to second-degree murder, I was mad. In court, I viewed O'Shea as an animal. And at the end of the court, when he's sentenced to prison uh, for how many years, um, Mary claims that her faith prompted her, Christian faith prompted her to forgive because the Bible told her to forgive. But she realized that the root of bitterness, it ran deep for many, many years. And she hated everyone around her for many years. Can you imagine being the mom, Mary, and having your only son murdered before your, um, not before your own eyes, but having your only, your only very son uh, murdered? Years later, before O'Shea finished his prison sentence, uh, Mary made an appointment to actually visit O'Shea in, in prison, in jail. She's never visited prison before. And right when she walked in, she wanted to leave. But she pushed through and she sat across from her son's killer and he talked for two hours. And O'Shea in that moment was able to admit and finally apologize for what he did. And Mary says that in that moment, she was able to forgive her son's murderer. And as the conversation ended, O'Shea, the man, asked if he could hug her. And afterwards she write, I just hugged the man who murdered my son. After he finished his prison sentence, he came home to a welcome party organized by Mary because Mary says, I would treat you as I would treat my own son. And our relationship is beyond belief. She even writes, you are my spiritual son. Believe it or not, 
These two live right next door to one another in Minneapolis. Can you imagine that? Having the heart to forgive and love your son's murderer. Mary was a Christian. And she, and she, I had to assume that she knew that God forgave her of an enormous debt. And therefore, she felt compelled to forgive others, even the person who murdered her own son. My youth pastor shared this story with me when I was in high school, I believe. And I remembered it ever since. And stories like this that remind us, don't we live in a story like that? Isn't the gospel story a sense like that? That God loves us even while we were yet sinners sentenced to judgments. Even while our own sins and evil stirred up compassion in a holy God. That Jesus, God's only son, wasn't he also murdered for the sake of our sins? But Hebrews 2 says that Jesus, the son of God, he tasted death for everyone so that he could bring many sons to glory. Don't we live in a gospel story where God's only son was murdered because of the sins of you and myself? And get this, it's not that we force Jesus to get on the cross. Jesus himself willingly went to the cross to die for your sins, not because he was coerced to, but because he had compassion in his heart springing to save you and I. And if God forgives you of an unpayable debt, and if you call yourself a Christian, shouldn't you forgive others of their offense against you? That's where the parable leads us with today. I pray that God gives us the strength to forgive when we lack the power to do so. Our own strength. Let me pray for us right now. Lord, we come before you knowing how comfortable our hearts are to glorious truth. We grow up knowing and learning that you died, you sent your son to die on the cross for our sins. And yet we sit here in these chairs and it's easy to lose sight of how amazing and glorious that is. God, we all have people in this world, in this life that maybe we hate and dislike and we want them to die. But God, I pray that you would remove the heart of hatred within us and that you would help us see that just as you forgave us through the death of your son, that we would be empowered to forgive other people despite what they do to us. Give us the strength that we, that we lack on our own. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, if you're new here today, we'd go.